He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a life, what a day, Saturday, April 17, 2021. I have my favorite podcasts, and they have snappy dialogue. We have a lot of that today with Craig's Lawyer's Lounge opening twice. Bruce Brown was a terrific DA up in the mountains. He's got a lot to say. You will hear from him and my troubadour with his song, Sugar Don't Call. But right now, Penfield Tate III gets it going as we open up Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is a pleasure. This is the fifth time that he has been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. The first time in the podcast version. I've had the good fortune to be a panelist with him on Colorado Inside Out. And I also got to moderate a debate as he ran for Denver mayor in 2019. He and I became lawyers in Colorado, I think the exact same year. What a joy to welcome back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge, Penfield Tate III. How are you, Pen? Craig, I'm great. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. No, it's my honor, and especially this week. Unfortunately, we can say that about a lot of weeks, but right now we have to talk about what's going on in this world. We woke up to another shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. We're recording this late on a Friday afternoon. We've heard about Dante Wright. We all watched Adam Toledo shot in Chicago. We're aware of George Floyd, that trial going on with Derek Chauvin, closing arguments on Monday. Penfield Tate III, proud black man, proud civic leader. What's your reaction to what's going on? Clearly, it's distressing, Craig. I mean, and as a black man who was raised in this country, you know, as a teenager, even growing up in Boulder, I got to talk from my parents about how you have to handle yourself, how you have to behave when you come into contact with law enforcement. And yet we see time after time after time again, young and sometimes not so young black men shot and killed by police officers. And, you know, you get to a point, I, you know, I have a saying that I use that twice is a pattern. All of these can't be accidents, even though they happen in different parts of the country and they appear to be isolated. It's just too frequent and the circumstances are too similar for it all to be a series of accidents. It's how, you know, police officers around the country are trained. It's how they're conditioned when they deal with African-American men in particular. They shoot first and ask questions later. And it's happened time after time after time. You know, you didn't mention a young boy who was playing with a, a plastic pistol on a playground, and the officer rolled up on him in his car, jumped out the car, and shot and killed him. 
how many times as kids did we play with cap guns and toy pistols? And getting shot by a police officer was never something we thought about or, or feared would happen, but it happens too frequently. I do know that case because Lamar Sims, who I worked with for many years in the Denver DA's office, went from Denver out to Minnesota to investigate that case. And that was a tough one because it was a young boy who was pretty big, and it was reported by some caller to the police that there was a man with a gun in the park. And it was terrible. I'm not saying it was justified, but sometimes there's more to this story. Sometimes there isn't. I do think we have to look at all of these as a group and in isolation, just in fairness. You're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Everybody here gets due process. I mean, there's a world of difference between this female officer who shot Dante Wright and Derek Chauvin, who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd, at least in my mind, is there in yours? Yeah, again, clearly they're all separate incidents, and in fairness and consistent with our judicial system, you have to view them all based on the facts and circumstances of each case. I would simply offer to you that when you look at these in the broader prism in terms of what's happening in our country, there are too many like, related, or similar incidents to believe they're all just accidental or they're all just coincidences. There are too many common threads that run through all of them. But yeah, clearly the shooting just north of where George Floyd was killed is a different set of circumstances, but it's distressing nonetheless. You've got a veteran police officer who mistook her pistol for a taser and, and shot someone in his car for a traffic infraction. Let's talk about that, because I don't think that's quite accurate. I feel terrible for what happened, and obviously... I mean, I think I know what happened there, and you tell me if I'm wrong in any respect. Dante Wright, age 20, got pulled over because of uh, lapsed registration tags, which is questionable because a lot of people are driving around with those because of the pandemic. The government can't get the tags to the people in Colorado and Minnesota. So it may be that he got pulled over for driving while black, which is problematic. But then once they contacted him, they ran him, and there was a warrant, and she was a field training officer, and she had this rookie officer try to handcuff Dante, and he allowed him to wriggle away and get back in the car, and it looked like he was going to drive off with a passenger in there. And so this veteran officer had a decision to make, you know, to let a guy who has just he might have still had the handcuffs on him, you know, drive off. Probably in hindsight, that would have been a good decision, but she decided to deploy a taser. She said, taser, taser. And for whatever stupid reason, she failed to perceive that she had a real gun. Right after she shot him, she said, oh, shit, I shot him. And so isn't it clear that what we have here is criminal negligence as opposed to you know, an assassination or premeditated murder? Clearly, this is not an assassination. I mean, in the typical way that we talk about it. But Craig, consider this also. At the time 
the young man got back in his car, there are several things that are clear. Number one, they knew he wasn't a violent criminal or felon. Number two, they knew who he was. They had his name. They had his identity. They knew where he lived they, because they ran his plates. They ran his name and knew he had misdemeanor warrants outstanding. So it's not like they didn't know who this guy was. I think he had a gun charge on his record, which they would have seen. But they knew he wasn't armed at the time they encountered him. And it's not like he was reaching in his car for a weapon to come out and confront two officers. No, he was going to drive away. Yeah, and he's not a fleeing felon. I mean, an expired tag is not a felony offense. So the question is is whether it's worthy of a taser, right? Clearly, he should not be shot. Even if he was a fleeing felon, that would be a yeah. bad idea. But the question is, was deploying a taser reasonable under the circumstances? Would it have happened to a white kid like that? I mean, we don't know, and, and I... I think there's real... Craig, I, w- I would submit we do know. Okay. You aren't going to taser somebody for an expired license tag. No, but he had a warrant that commanded them to bring him to jail. That's the thing about warrants. Yeah. Got you. Got you. But again, you're dealing with someone who you know who he is and you have his address, it's a known person, you got the car identified, you have the tags, you've run him. Let's say he got in the car and sped away. You know what the officers are going to do. They're going to call it in, say, we were just in contact with this person. We stopped him for expired tags. Oh, by the way, he's got two outstanding warrants for failing to appear or whatever. And this is his name. This is his address. Somebody needs to go by and try to pick him up. Can you foresee a possible traffic incident, a police chase growing out of that? When do they have to wait until? I mean, these are tough issues. Whereas, why don't we move on to another case like Adam Toledo? I saw that. It's heartbreaking. I don't think there's any way the cop will be convicted. And this kid, in my mind, he threw away the gun right before he turned around to surrender and he got shot. Is that the way you see it? Well, I think there are a couple of things to still be determined. But even with the description that you provide, what is clear is when the kid got shot, he didn't have a weapon and didn't pose a threat to the officer. That's the problem. And here's the thing, Craig, consider this also. When we had the shooting, I'm trying to think, the protest, I think it was either in Minneapolis or Seattle, where you had the one counter-protester who sat there with a rifle, a semi-automatic weapon, and shot the marchers, a white man. He was arrested and taken into custody. So there are numerous instances, and as a matter of fact, You know, if you take a look at Facebook, Instagram, or some of these other social media channels, you will hear people say, you know, I read about or heard about this incident reported about another mass shooting, and I heard that the suspect was apprehended and taken into custody, so I knew it had to be a white male. Because if it had been a black male, the presumption is there's no way a black male would have survived that encounter. And so as we evaluate all of these 
different instances, you've got to also set them next to instances where there have been cases where white men who have been armed with weapons and actually took lives, they weren't gunned down by the right. police. Adam Roof. They were right. Yeah, they were they were captured and taken into custody. Right. And they bought a burger for Adam Roof down in the South. I don't know if that was to get a confession or what. But I get your point, but back to Adam Toledo, the thirteen year old shot dead in that alley in Chicago. I don't think the cop could tell the color of his skin. And if he did, it was, you know, more white than mine. So how does that factor into it? What kind of racism would have been involved there? You know, that one, I I don't know if that was necessarily racism, but the thing you have to ask yourself is the kid had his hands raised. He was giving up. It was visible. He didn't have a weapon, but he shot dead. Right, but he had it a half second before, before he whirled around. He had tossed the weapon like in one motion. What a tough call. I feel horrible. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Why don't we move to an easier case like Elijah McClain in Aurora, Colorado? That poor guy was doing nothing. He was just walking home from the store. And you know, what's most distressing about that case is, you know, clearly Elijah had some different abilities in, you know, being the father of a daughter who has some disabilities that worries me because this is a young man who tried to tell the police, I've got some issues going on. I don't want you to misread the situation with me. I've got anxiety. I'm differently abled. Please understand that he didn't do anything wrong. They could not have possibly have suspected him of doing anything wrong. He didn't have a weapon. They confront him. They throw him down. They restrain him. You know, paramedics come, they inject him, and now he's dead. And this is a kid who was totally innocent and could not have been reasonably suspected to have done anything. And if you tell me the police think he was acting suspicious, you know, the response is, so now being black and walking through a neighborhood is suspicious activity because there's nothing else Elijah McClain did. I agree. And if you ask me if he would have been white, Elijah McClain, would that have happened? I would say I doubt it. I doubt it very much. And George Floyd, the same thing. The most shocking thing about Derek Chauvin and what he did is those other police officers who stood by and let it happen. They're charged, but that is the very definition of a systemic problem, right? Well, absolutely. And even, Craig, if other police officers had said, hey, hey, Derek, you know, come on, man. He was in the car. Then we dragged him out. Now you got your knee on his neck. He's clearly gasping. We don't need to do this. You know, we've got an example of the one woman, the African-American police officer, lost her job, what, eight, ten years ago for telling another officer you're using excessive force. And now eight years later, she's been reinstated and has gotten her retirement restored retroactively for trying to tell a fellow officer you've crossed the line. And so there is an inherent problem within police departments around the country. 
we used to think of the police as keeping the peace, but that's no longer what's happening anymore. Too many lives are being taken unnecessarily. I think there's a problem. And let's talk about the prosecutors who have badges and a lot of power. In the case of Elijah McClain, it's coming down to Phil Weiser, Attorney General of Colorado. Before we get to him, Keith Ellison has taken over this Derek Chauvin prosecution. I think he's done a good job. I might have charged him with first-degree murder, but he went with a lower charge. I think he'll get it. I'm very impressed by the prosecution team. What about you? Have you been able to watch? You know, I've basically watched excerpts and a couple of observations. I do think the prosecutor has done a good job in that case. But what I find most compelling about the case and what's most impressed me is that the blue wall or the code of silence has not been in effect. And from the chief of police to training officers to others in that department have had the courage and come forward and say, you know what, this was just wrong. It was just flat wrong. It should never have happened. We don't train our officers to do this. What Chauvin did was unacceptable. It it violates our protocols. And yeah, he needs to be held responsible for this. You know, George Floyd shouldn't be dead again over an allegation that he passed a counterfeit $20 bill. Although, again, in fairness, you should never fight the police, which he did. And he he fought them for a while. And to me, the problem for the police is, hey, fellas, you can't do street justice. That's, That's We don't do that in America. But they did it. He fought them, so they were going to pay him back and Payback's a bitch for all involved here. Yeah, but Craig, I mean, in, in, in that particular case, they approach him, they deal with him, they put him in the squad car, then they pull him back he out. He wouldn't stay in the squad car. They could never shut the door. And the struggle begins. You've got, and I thought, frankly, I thought the defense was a bit disingenuous to say that Chauvin felt threatened and he was distracted by the crowd. The crowd was saying, hey, man, you're killing him. Get off of his neck. Let him up. No one in the crowd threatened to intervene or jump a police officer. Most of them were videotaping the entire incident. And that's what's so egregious. Chauvin just sat there and acted just oblivious to his surroundings and the circumstances. And what's really distressing is he wasn't even paying attention to George Floyd. He just got to the point where he didn't care. He wanted to subdue him. He rendered him unconscious. And ultimately, he murdered him. And that's wrong. Right. And he deserved to be punished to the full extent of the law. What about Phil Weiser? What a tough call he has because it wasn't a shooting. It wasn't a knee on the neck. It was probably a paramedic or a firefighter who injected the ketamine into poor Elijah McClain. I would not want that prosecutorial call. How do you think Phil Weiser will do? You know, it remains to be seen, but here, here's the bottom line. When you're the attorney general, I think if you believe in the rule of law, and you expect people to abide by the law, you have to show them that the law applies to everyone. 
the facts are clear, I think even clearer in Elijah McClain, a young man who did nothing, absolutely nothing wrong, wasn't armed, didn't resist, explained that he had special circumstances, and between the police and the paramedics, he's now dead. Somebody or somebodies, several people, have to be held accountable for that homicide. That young man, there's no reason in the world that young man should be dead. And, you know, I I really get concerned when, you know, there were several community protests and community vigils in response to that. And I get concerned when people tell me, well, you know, it's a tough call. You know, the police and paramedics were doing their job. People shouldn't be marching in the streets and objecting because, you know, we need the police and everybody to protect us. Well, yeah, they ought to be protesting. They ought to be voicing their disapproval. You're not being protected if you can just be grabbed off the street, questioned, harassed, restrained, and then through a series of circumstances end up dead for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And all you were doing is walking down the street. Wow. You make a strong case. Elijah McClain, what a tragedy. We will keep following it. Speaking of race, let's talk about Georgia. What happened there with their voting laws? Voting rights are civil rights. And the All-Star Game moved from Atlanta to Denver. What are your thoughts on that, Pentate? You know, a, a couple things to consider. There were aspects of the Georgia law that were not more onerous than prior law, but they were more onerous than circumstances and changes that were made to accommodate voters as a result of the pandemic. But specifics aside, it cannot be disputed that the primary motivation for the Georgia law as articulated by lawmakers, was to make it more difficult for people. And I think it is disingenuous to try to argue you weren't targeting voters of color, that the whole intent was to make it more difficult for them to vote, or at least to suppress their voting in the numbers in which they voted in the 2020 election. Right, because when people of color vote, Donald Trump loses. And Donald Trump put out that big lie, and it was centered in Georgia, where he made a call that I think is prosecutable to Raffensperger. Hey, get me some votes. You've run and won elections and lost elections. My God, did you ever think you could do that with the vote counter, make a call like that and get away with it? To me, this legislation comes from the big lie. And let's not forget that a part of the big lie was to attack cities like Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, where a lot of black people voted, Milwaukee, and say, that's crooked. They don't do it fair there. And then try to restrict it. And for them to pass legislation out of Georgia, I don't care if some of it's good. We know it's born of this big lie. And we know that Raffensperger specifically, who had the courage to stand up to Trump, he gets stripped of power. 
not only that, Trump has got somebody he wants to primary against him yes. to take him out of office. And, you know, uh, all you have to do is I can't remember which elected official it was in Arizona who said it's the quality of votes, not the quantity of votes. And that's one of the most racist things I've ever heard someone say. You've basically got someone, again, who's a subscriber to the Trump big lie saying, you know, what we really want to stop is black and brown people from voting because we don't think their votes should be given the same weight as others. And I'll bet some people will go further and say, we don't think they should be allowed to vote at all, which is the real problem here. And part of what I think we're seeing nationally, and again, Craig, this is, I think we're in the middle of a cycle and in the middle of a, a movement a lot of the protests around the killing of George Floyd and others, the protesters weren't all people of color. Young whites were involved, the Latinx community, the Asian American community, and gosh, the racism towards Asian Americans in this country around the, the pandemic has just been frightening. But you've got all of these circumstances converging in this country at one time, and people are saying, you know, even people who aren't directly impacted by it, but people are saying enough is enough. We're not going to put up with this in our country. You can't treat people this way, anybody this way, because of the color of their skin, whether it's trying to strip them of the vote whether it's blaming them for the coronavirus pandemic, which they had nothing to do with, a host of other things, this has all got to stop. But it's not stopping. You know, you and I can say it, but what about Tucker Carlson? This week he talked about replacement theory, and that's behind that Charlottesville chant, Jews will not replace us. And they have a conspiracy theory where Jews are dedicated to bringing in black and brown people to replace the white master race, whatever that view. We've heard it before, variations. There are people saying it's Fox News where too many cops get their news, by the way. It pisses me yeah. off. And you've been a big part of the media. You like to weigh in. Substantial voices are saying things that I never thought we'd hear any more than I ever thought I'd hear a chant of Jews will not replace us in America. We're reaching a turning point and a point of major decision in this country. You're right. And this has been coming for years. I think the former president is sort of the culmination of this phenomenon that started several years ago, where, you know, when I was growing up as a child, you had the George Wallaces, the Lester Maddoxes, the Strom Thurmonds, they were avowed and, you know, public racist and segregationist, and they just said it. And then what we had in America for many years is that a number of elected officials still believed it, and that was their official policy and position, but they weren't comfortable articulating it publicly. We've now come full circle, and Tucker Carlson and others are now saying things that George Wallace and Lester Maddox and Strom Thurmond used to say publicly. And America is reaching an inflection point where we're going to have to deal with these issues once again, and hopefully once and for all, we've got to deal with this 
yeah, you're entitled to free speech, but you can't let official policy of the United States of America be racism. Part of it is the leadership, elected officials. Part of it is the media, but part of it is America's original sin. I'm no expert on this South, never lived there, never wanted to, or the Midwest or any other part of the country. But you talk about George Wallace, he got elected down in Alabama. A lot of those type of segregationists got elected and they were Democrats. But Democrats grew to the point where we didn't want them anymore, right? And the Democrats got rid of them, but the people didn't go away. They were adopted by Reagan Republicans and then they found a big home with the former president we're not going to name, at least for the minute. So where did the Wallace people go? They're part of Tucker Carlson's base. They're part of the former president's base. And to the extent that the leaders think they can control them, maybe they can, maybe they can't. You're right, Craig, and you will remember, and I think the transition began with Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. who talked about the Southern strategy, the Southern and the strategy. Southern strategy right. was to get the segregationists to transition from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, because that's where Nixon needed them to be, which is ironic, because in his early years in California, politically, he was known for actually being more of a a Lincoln Republican in terms of dealing with discrimination. But when it came to becoming president, he threw all that out the window and adopted the Southern strategy, which I think created the transition in terms of the migration of the segregationists from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Then Ronald Reagan announced his campaign in Tupelo, Mississippi, and that had significance. And then he also gave that speech in Bitburg. I mean, there were some kind of reach outs to people that you say, wow, why is he doing this? Or why do Republicans do it? Why don't they call out People like Lauren Boebert. Let's move right there, Penn Tate. Let's talk about our state of Colorado. Did you ever think we'd have a congresswoman like Lauren Boebert? Yeah, and I would tell you we've had congresspeople like her in the past. To me, it's not quite as stunning as some believe. Again, the big difference between Boebert and some of her predecessors is she's now comfortable saying out loud what some of them thought and the policies they supported, but she's saying it and acting on it. And I think for Colorado, I mean, she's entitled to her own opinion, but for a state that I think prides itself on being a little more progressive, I think she's become a caricature and and a bit of an embarrassment. I, I mean, think about it, Craig. Colorado is a state where Republican and Democrat alike have supported the transition and migration to almost 100% mail-in voting with no allegations of fraud or mismanagement or anything else. Every secretary of state I can think of we've had, Republican or Democrat, has supported expanding the franchise to registered and qualified voters so that we get greater participation in our democracy here in Colorado. And then you got somebody like Boebert, who is still pushing the big lie that the former president, as an, you know, an inherent part of his continued push to, I don't know if he's creating a new Republican Party or trying to create his own political party. I don't know. 
But, you know, she benefited from the record turnout in Colorado, and she's got the nerve to turn around and still talk about a stolen election. It just it boggles the mind. Right. But she is the Trumpiest. And that seems to be that base that we talked about. Give them what they want. And she glorifies guns. It sickens me that she had AR weapons behind her as backdrop. And the only thing I've really learned about the Indianapolis shooter, 19 years old, with an AR-15. Penfield Tate, the third, your father was mayor of Boulder. You grew up there. I went to that King Supers, my three years of law school. It broke my heart what happened there. I know you have thoughts. Why don't you share them? Yeah, I mean, it's tragic. And, and yeah, I grew up in Boulder. Uh, you know, I have a sister who lives in Table Mesa. I have cousins who live in that neighborhood. I've been in that King Supers before. What is disturbing is when I've read about it, it sounds like this fellow bypassed a bunch of other communities to go specifically to that King Supers with his weapons to start shooting up the place. You know, Craig, it's for me personally, the Second Amendment is in the U.S. Constitution in a modified version. It's in the state constitution. As you know, the state constitution, our Second Amendment does not allow for concealed carry. It makes that distinction. And I think there are many of us who believe that if people want to have handguns or other weapons in their homes, that's fine. But not everybody needs to have or should have a semi-automatic weapon. The government's not running around trying to confiscate people's weapons. We ought to have you know, universal background checks. We ought to have registration. We ought to know where these weapons are. I'll go further. I want an assault weapon ban. What about you? Just like we have in Denver. We ought to. I mean, there's, you don't use assault weapons to go hunting. That's clear. And, you know, there is no, in my opinion, there's no legitimate purpose for having them. Right. The problem is the Hiller decision where Scalia said you can have any kind of common weapon and AR-15s have become common, but the Colorado Supreme Court would allow an assault weapon ban because really our state constitution doesn't have the qualifying language about a militia, but they still found that Denver's assault weapon ban was constitutional. Now it's in question because of a subsequent law and a ruling in Boulder, but I think the legislature will act Penn, you were in the legislature for quite a while. What do you think they can do? What do you think they will do under the leadership of uh, Governor Jared Polis on the issue of guns? Is it too much of a third rail to touch? No, I don't think it is too much of a third rail. You know, guns is an issue that I, that you know, and in the time I served, and I, and I believe it even more so now, that those legislators who profess to be defenders of the Second Amendment are out of step with the vast majority of Coloradans who want to see universal background checks, who want to see a ban on assault weapons, who support the idea of people having weapons in their home for self-defense, but they say, you know, there's there's a limit. The Second Amendment doesn't mean you can park a tank in your backyard 
to defend your life and liberty. That's not what it was intended to mean. And think that people have taken the wording from a document written nearly 250 years ago when what constituted an arm that you could bear was very different than what we have now. I know, but we've lost that argument. So what about court packing, if that's the only way we can get around the three Scalia's that the former president got to a point? You know, we're going to continue to see these battles with regard to confirmation of judges at the state and federal level to deal with these issues, guns, abortion, gender identity, politics, all of these things, all of these social issues that we've not been able to come to consensus on in legislative bodies. And even when we do, what happens is outlier elements go to court and try to find a friendly judge who will overturn the consensus legislation that's been passed. Right, like Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, if they bring a gun issue to her, she's going to rule on the gun side. On any abortion issue, she hates abortion. So I'm asking, and they're talking about it this week, add four more justices, get rid of life tenure. I mean, are these things we need to talk about? And while we're at it and we're talking about voting rights, which I do think Republicans want to strip away from people of color, then the John Lewis Voting Act is stymied in the legislature. Do we have to get rid of the filibuster? Is that a racist relic of our racist past? It likely is. And we're talking about this, and it's something we ought to talk about. One of the things, a statement you made a moment ago about America's original sin is when you take a look at the drafting of the Constitution and some of the things that were done, and the Second Amendment is a prime example of that, much of what's in our Constitution and that forms the foundation of our federal laws were concessions and compromises that the abolitionists made to the slave owners in the South in an effort to try to keep this new country together and cohesive and whole. And, you know, the part of the, the impetus for the Second Amendment was the slave owners who wanted to have the ability protected in the Constitution to put together a militia, which is the term they used, to be able to go after and retrieve runaway slaves who had run to freedom or had escaped. The filibuster, two senators per state. Two senators per state was another concession to the South that was made so that every state has the same Senate representation, even though there are vast disparities in the populations in several of the states. And and so big picture, yes, all of these things always, I think, bear conversation, examination, and consideration. And I think, Craig, as time goes by, the merits of particular proposed solutions and changes need to be evaluated. I can't sit here today and tell you that I think the answer is to add four more justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. I can't sit here and tell you that the answer is to strip away with the lifetime tenure of Article III federally appointed judges. I don't know if those are the answers to the issues that we have. 
but I do think they are appropriate steps to have conversations around to determine how we begin to address some of the issues that continue to vex our country. Right. And there's not another side to talk to because the GOP is the party of the former president. And until it's not, what can you really talk about? Am I right? I mean, I haven't talked to you since January 6th, but holy cow, what an event in American history. To me, there are only two sides to politics now, the side of the former president, the side of the big lie, or the people opposed to that crap. Well, and unfortunately, that's the way some things are shaping up as the member of Congress, whether you sit in the House or the Senate, how you can take any action to condone what the, the, the riot and the, insurrect, the act of insurrection the former president promoted and encouraged is beyond me. You're basically telling your voters that you really have no right to sit in the seat that you're in. Because if, if one person can start an insurrection or a riot that it, that it, that urges people to break into the Capitol and, you know, they were even trying to kill the vice president of the person they claim to love and support. How do you wrap your head around that? How does that make any sense? Well, he went against Mr. Big. That's the price you got to pay. If you're in a cult, it's it's a cult. And to me, I look at the Colorado GOP. Christy Burton Brown is their new chairperson. Are you kidding me? Isn't the GOP on the way to oblivion, except on the Western Slope? And Greeley. Let me add in Greeley. <laughs> I, I get your point when you say Ann Greeley. Clearly, I think, and we've seen this happen over time, the Democratic Party went through this before and continues to talk about it a little bit. When, when you talk about the more progressive branch, sort of represented by um, Bernie Sanders and AOC and others, but the Republican Party really has some soul searching to do. What I find interesting, Craig, and I had this conversation with someone earlier this week, a number of the people I served with in the General Assembly who were Republican legislators are now, many of them have become registered as unaffiliated because they will tell you that they didn't leave the Republican Party so much as it left them. And you described it as a cult. Now, I don't want to do that, but I think John Boehner said it best, the former Speaker of the House, a Republican from Ohio, when he said, look, when do we stop being a party of ideas and started being a party, you know, reflective of what one guy wants us to do? And his whole point is, we got to get away from this. And you see a number of people, and I think in my mind, Ted Cruz is an example there are people who will say or do anything to try to elevate their own political prominence. I know, but you know, both those guys still voted for Trump. Cruz, even after Trump insulted his wife, what a low life Cruz is. And Boehner, I don't have too much respect for him. And why would anybody want to be a Republican? Among other things, you got to boycott all the sports. Now they're mad about Major League Baseball. 
I say good for Major League Baseball. They should have moved, and they won't watch the NBA. For me, a long time, Pentate, I'm a big basketball fan, and people who say, I don't like to watch the NBA, I think, well, maybe you're a racist. I don't know. It's a possibility, and they won't watch football now for some of them because of Colin Kaepernick. Let's end our talk on the fun part of life, sports pages. Am I right about that? I mean, sports? Yeah, well, I mean, but, but think about it, Craig. I mean, people were blasting Colin Kaepernick when all he did was a peaceful, silent protest against excessive police force and police brutality. He wasn't marching in the streets. He wasn't even giving press conferences. He was just kneeling during the national anthem. And people, I mean, the NFL drove him out of the league, and they let the owners drive him out of the league. This is a guy who'd been to a Super Bowl. So he's far more talented than most of the quarterbacks playing in the NFL, but they drove him out of the league because he had the audacity to silently protest. Now, years later, I bet several of those people are longing for the time when all they had to deal with was silent protest rather than all these people marching in the street saying, we've had enough and we're not going to get anymore. You make a great point. Thanks for that about Colin Kaepernick. How timely, right? That guy was ahead of his time speaking out on an important issue we were all recognizing. But I went to opening day. I had my double vaccination. I bet you have too, because we're the same age. I hope you have. And I felt good enough to be out in public. And when I go around Coors Field, always stop to admire that nice memorial for your father. Tell everybody about that. And I want to find out the right way to protest the Rockies. I found one way, I bet, against them every night. I think I could soon be a zillionaire on DraftKings. But other than that, how do you protest what they're doing to the sport that you and your dad love so much. Uh, you know, and Craig, thank you for that. Yeah, for, for your listeners, my father was on the Metro Stadium board that, that authorized and built Coors Field. And my dad, many people don't know, was the first All-American football player at his alma mater, Kent State University, even before Jack Lambert went there. He was an All-American lineman at, at Kent State. So football was what he played. And it was his love and what he did in college. But baseball was, was actually a sport he really enjoyed probably more than any other watching a baseball game. And unfortunately, he died before Coors Field was finished. So he never got to see the Rockies play in, in Coors Field. I have gone to a number of Rockies games over the years. And, you know, what, what saddens me with the Rockies is and maybe it's not fair to say, but as a fan, I think I have a right to say it, so I will. You've got to question their commitment to wanting to win. I mean, you basically gave away Nolan Arenado. And I've heard some people say, well, hey, he didn't want to be here, and it's good riddance, and it costs too much. Well, he didn't want to be here because he didn't think ownership was committed to winning, and he didn't want to waste his career in a place where there was not a commitment to putting together a representative competitive team on the field. Craig, I think the way you boycott, uh, the way you deal with it is the way I deal with it. 
I'm just not going to go to the games. You know, I, I go see the Broncos. I go see the Nuggets. I do some other things. But, you know, my response is just not to give them my money. Not until I think they've shown to my satisfaction a commitment to being a winning organization. It is sad. I mean, they got fleeced. Nolan Arenado, it's bothersome. But while we're on the subject of your dad and him being an All-American at Kent State, what famous NFL star out of Kent State just announced his retirement this week? Oh, Julian Edelman. One of my people's. I mean, we don't have that many Jewish football yeah, stars. Yeah, and, and, and I think Edelman was a, a quarterback at Kent State. I think he was a quarterback when he was in college and converted to receiver when he joined the NFL and the Patriots. He never converted. No, I'm just kidding. He became stronger <laughs> in his Judaism. But you bring up uh, tragic losses of athletes on Denver sports teams. I try to be upbeat. Even with the snow, that's bumming me out. I'm ready to play some golf. But Jamal Murray going down the other night at Golden State, that sickened me. Did you watch that? The Nuggets, I think, were legitimate NBA championship contenders this year. And now the Blue Arrow going down, it's tragic, tragic for the young man and for the team. It really is tragic because before his injury, I would have... I think had a winning argument had I told you that I thought the Nuggets were moving into the playoffs as a better team than the Los Angeles Lakers. The addition of Aaron Gordon has changed them defensively and offensively, allowed their offensive stars to conserve more energy, has allowed Michael Porter Jr. to be more effective, and with Porter and Murray and with Jokic, who who I believe is the NBA's MVP, if they give it to anybody else but Jokic this year, it's just going to be a national tragedy and a farce. You know, given the injury problems the Lakers have had, I, I thought the Nuggets were primed to win an NBA title this year. And then this kid blows out his knee like that, and your heart just goes out to him. He's worked so hard. The team has progressed. I wasn't sold on Malone as the coach when they first brought him in, but I got to give him his props. He's worked with the players. He's made them better players, and he's molded a solid team. I still think they're going to make a deep run in the playoffs. But without Murray, without another dedicated surefire score who as he showed last year can just walk on the court and get you 50 a night if he has to i just don't know if they have enough firepower to match up with other teams in the west and that's the key if you can win the western conference and get to the nba final you can pretty much beat any team out of the east although after boston put that little comeback on denver they got some tough players but i love the nba clearly you do too and waiting in the Western Conference Finals is probably LeBron. I watched him walking around okay. I think his ankle will get better. Let's not just talk sports, but to me, LeBron James is a leader in America right now, and so far, I think he's done a good job with it. What do you think about the King, LeBron James? I think he has, and you know, Craig, this goes back to the topic we talked about a moment ago with Colin Kaepernick. People forget, you know, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, when they 
protested racial discrimination at the Olympics and were stripped of their medals. And all they did was hold a fist up in the air when other players and other athletes in the same Olympics protested and suffered no no punishment. But you got to remember back in the 60s and 70s when Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jim Brown and other black athletes spoke out against discrimination and racism and the issue around civil rights and voting rights in this country. LeBron James is just continuing that tradition where black athletes or people in positions of authority and power and visibility speak out against some of the injustices of the time. And that's their right and their prerogative. I'm not going to burden him by saying he has that responsibility. But I will say I'm glad he's taken the opportunity to speak out against what he clearly sees as something that is wrong. What Denver Connected athlete who was previous guest on my podcast was also part of that American Olympic team that went to Mexico City in 1968. I'll give you a hint. He was ABA Rookie of the Year. and Spencer Haywood. Spencer Haywood, who memorably said to me, I I said, you know, Spencer, I think the president, because we had our former president in power, I think the president is racist. And he said, you think? Anyway. (laughs) You know, he was one of Denver. He and Floyd Little, I mean, they were some of Denver's original superstars. I remember seeing Spencer Haywood as a kid, and boy, he was good. He was. He was something else. Let's end on a really light note. We talked about the King, LeBron. Prince Philip is getting buried as our podcast airs. The monarchy, does it make you queasy? I mean, I don't want to talk bad. They had a 73-year marriage, but Meghan Markle won't be there. Is there a little racism, colonialism going on there that needs to go bye-bye? You know, I I think... As a global community, we still struggle to accept the fact that there is more we have in common that unites and binds us than separates us. Sometimes it's race, sometimes it's color, sometimes it's creed, sometimes it's ethnicity, sometimes it's gender or gender identity. But we've got to reach a point, Craig, where we, we I think we have to accept the fact that those aren't the big issues that we need to address. The big issues are global warming, creating a peaceful environment, dealing with the inequities in wealth and prosperity around the globe that exist. We've got some big issues and big problems that as the community of, of humankind, we need to address. And we can solve all of these issues We've just got to stop focusing on the stuff that just doesn't matter. Beautifully said, Penfield Tate the Third. I can't thank you enough. I hope you enjoyed your latest visit to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I did. Thank you so much for having me as a guest and look forward to being with you again. Thank you. Bye. Take care, Craig. Bye. 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Troubadour, my troubadour, I know you are busy as heck in your work and in your music. You've got a job making music again. That's a great sign that the pandemic may be over. We'll be playing soon. And Craig, I've been uh, hearing that Red Rocks is opening. That's very exciting. Wow. How many times have you been to Red Rocks? And is that your aspiration? As a golfer, I'd like to play at Augusta. What about you? Have you ever played at Red Rocks? Never have. I was never invited. I don't know. I don't know why. But no, I'm not quite in that league, but I love going. I've seen many great, great performances there. And uh, I don't know how many times, but I've been here in the area for so long. Red Rocks always delivers. You've played such bigger venues like Folsom Field. Any place else that has huge dimensions like that? No, and let's get down to earth on the Folsom Field. <laughs> we were the band playing before the fireworks on July 4th. I thought you were opening for the Rolling Stones. I think that might have been the next day. How about that Mick Jagger got together with Dave Grohl, put together what's it called, Easy Greasy, and they're rocking out. What did you think of that song? Mick Jagger is your idol. Well, he's he's my he's my role model because it shows that there's an older guy who can still rock. And if you watch this one, thank you for sending it, Craig. If you watch this one, you see he's still he's still got it. He's just got he's got the attitude, he's got the passion, and he uh and he can sing, you know. And with Grohl, they were they teamed up just the two of them for the song. It's great. People should listen. I think your music is slightly better. But I may be biased, but you are so versatile. And this song, Sugar Don't Call, it's kind of a country blues song. It's a sad story, but in the end, it's like this relationship, it's irretrievable. So you got to move on. You got to move on. Yeah, this fellow's in the, in the throes of his, uh, of his suffering. And uh, hopefully through, through this song, he'll... He'll uh, begin to see that there's, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel in the form of a, of a new relationship. Okay. We will promote your appearances as they start to occur. Where are they going to be? In the Denver metro area? May 1st, uh, the Vipers, uh, which is my New Orleans band. We have a gig at a place called The Zone in Golden. It's a, I think it's Saturday, and uh, it's, a fun, it's a fun place. It's outside, and um, yeah, check it out. I will. This is great. So is your song, Sugar Don't Call, by Dave Gunders, our troubadour. 
Sometimes you see it coming Sometimes it hits you blind Somewhere along that road I might have missed a sign You never said a word About where you've been Now I got that sinking feeling Once again Crying out your name My tears fall to the floor Sugar don't call no more Sugar don't call no more No matter where I go Who I see Summer nights And your love flying over me And I hear your whisper It's here in the wind And it don't do me no good Sitting here pretending Don't call no more Sugar, don't call no
don't call no more Don't call no more The sugar don't call no It's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers. If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800, ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education. And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he's, how much he's worth now. You know, it's a lot. Let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, 
back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey there. Bruce Brown, welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, it's good to be here, Craig, as always. A lot has happened since first we met. I remember that Sam Kaufman said, hey, would you talk to a guy named Bruce Brown? He's new to Colorado. And I spoke with you. I knew you were going to go far. I didn't know how far. But man, now you've been elected DA for a couple of terms and you're still a young man. Tell everybody the Bruce Brown story. Yeah, well, I grew up in California, but I loved Colorado, went to university here and kept trying to figure a way to get back. You know, the perfect way, the perfect setup. Of course, there is no such thing. So one day just decided to throw caution to the wind move out. I had been practicing law as a defense attorney, defending people accused of crimes for 13 years. In 2002, I came out here, got a knock on my door one day by a gentleman who said, I heard there's another Democrat lives in town. This is Clear Creek County, very conservative at that time. Well, I confessed to the fact of my political affiliation. And next thing I knew, I was at a Democrats meeting with then Attorney General Ken Salazar sitting next to me. Geez, I had grown up, lived 30 years in California, never met the Attorney General and come to Colorado. And who knew? I was sitting having breakfast with him. And that led to the next conversation, which is we don't have a candidate for district attorney in the 5th Judicial, which is the mountain I-70 corridor. Would you please run? I thought it was kind of preposterous because, you know, I was the new guy in town, totally unknown, but figured I didn't have a lot to lose and would get my name out there. So I threw my hat in the ring, and as election night wound down, they were publicizing that I was the winner. But as the sun rose the next day, I had narrowly lost. So it was an interesting exposure. Waited a couple terms for the incumbent to be termed out, which I am now, and eight years later, threw my hat in the ring again and came up the gold medalist, not the silver medalist that time. And I did serve two terms. Careful, you're talking to a silver man. (laughs) And I I ran once for DA and I lost to a guy named Bill Ritter. I don't know what happened to him after that, but, you know, you're getting a little personal here, Bruce. Yeah, but, you know, if you look back on it, I'd rather be sitting in your chair right now than his. So it's all good, Craig. I don't know. Bill's doing pretty darn good. And Ken Salazar is apparently going to be appointed ambassador to Mexico. That's fantastic. Eminently qualified, great statesman and representative of our state for so many years. So he'll do a fine job there. When Norm Early stepped down from being Denver DA, Roy Romer, the governor, had a decision to make who was going to be the next Denver DA. And he appointed Bill Ritter and the guy in charge of the selection process, Ken Salazar. So he has run through Colorado politics quite a bit. But what about you? It can't be one and done or two terms and done. You're a young man, Bruce Brown. What's next? Well, you know, we're just hopefully at the end of this pandemic tunnel 
And not only are those circumstances conducive to stepping back and reassessing, but I decided to take a self-funded sabbatical. And so uh, since January 13th, the day that my successor was sworn in, I've been on sabbatical. I've been enjoying skiing and biking when I can and being with my family. But the decision will be coming soon, but we're not there yet. One of the things that I did over the last year was I was very active in the effort to elect Joe Biden. So I feel like the last year was not only closing out my term as DA, but helping elect a president. I'm very proud of things that he's doing and the changes that are occurring. So, you know, in some ways, it's been a very good year. Great minds think alike. That's the raison d'etre behind this podcast. I wanted to do all I could, not just to elect Joe Biden, to make sure that Donald Trump was not reelected. Boy, that was scary. And it just came out about Kalimnik and Manafort sharing information with Russia. And I think he cheated to win and he was going to cheat to win in 2020. And boy, I did not like the direction of the country. And I don't think he's defeated fully before we dive into all the lessons you learned as prosecutor in the fifth JD. Don't you think that Donald Trump is a unique kind of threat to America, your family, my family, everybody? You know, when he took office and the people around me, because I do surround myself with a lot of progressives, not entirely. They're talking about, you know, moving to Canada and how this is going to affect their life. And I was naive. And I said, you know, what a president does doesn't usually affect your life much. But I think he did infect our lives in so many ways, both literally by not getting ahead and in control of a pandemic, but figuratively by weakening the quality of our discourse, our relationships worldwide as an international player, making people who are underprivileged and and not part of the elite, their positions worsened greatly over the past four years. So yeah, he's trouble. And you probably have a good sense of a criminal type. You hate to label people. Everybody, I suppose, is susceptible to rehabilitation, but We're going to get around to making charging decisions. One thing I used to like to know is, what do we know about this person? Did they have a criminal history? And I'm sure you had your repeat offenders, your incorrigibles. And that's the way I see Donald Trump. He's a criminal type. And I'm very frightened that so many people are willing to give in to that. Yeah, you know, he's a very practiced liar. And obviously, the media was tracking each and every one of those lies. But, you know, as citizens, no matter what side of the political spectrum you may be on, you're not there to track the lies your leaders are telling you. And you're going to take a lot of what people say at face value. So the fact that he has been able to deceive so many people puts him in a category that probably, if we're going to label, is probably sociopathic. We will probably return to him and what you think about the January 6th insurrection and all of that. But first, I don't know an easy category to put you in politically. You're a proud Democrat. You came from California, but you were a solid prosecutor. And I think politics and prosecution are separate things. But I don't regard you as one of those new wave 
George Soros-sponsored prosecutors. Instead of me guessing about your politics, Bruce, why don't you take a stab at it? Yeah, you know, I think if you're asking me to, you know, put myself in a category socially, I think, you know, I'm pretty darn liberal, but that also has some libertarian bent to it, which means people should be able to live their individual lives without the government intruding on it, but have the government there to support them in order to make sure that their freedoms are maintained. You know, as a prosecutor, you're right, Craig, we don't fall into these liberal or conservative buckets too cleanly. We coalesce around the idea of public safety and then how we follow that idea of public safety sometimes identifies our politics. So, for example, you know, in terms of incarceration and in particular pretrial incarceration, should we lock up people the day that they are arrested or should we allow them to be at their own liberty and in order to determine while they're on their own liberty whether they're guilty or not. I, You know, I, I kind of think people deserve, in general, the benefit of the doubt. And as DA, I crafted policies to make sure that police officers had the discretion for people, even with serious, not violent, but serious charges, could remain on their own liberty until the court process played out. So, yeah, that's an example of how a prosecutor's politics is defined. But, you know, as a citizen, I'm a big believer in capitalism and that business is the way that we can all have good lives by having quality jobs out there. And so I think I, I fall kind of right in the middle of that political spectrum. Some progressive Democrats have introduced a bill taking away that discretion on low-level felonies. They cannot arrest. Right now, they have discretion. I was always fascinated because where I worked in Denver for 16 years, people got arrested for felonies and then they got processed. A bail was set. Meanwhile, in Jefferson County, which was by and large more conservative politically, they handled a lot of lesser felonies with a summons. And that was their discretion. I take it that you like that discretion. What do you think of this legislation? kind of limiting peace officers to make that call? You know, the legislature currently keeps pushing us to a place where each individual county or judicial district doesn't get the opportunity to make those choices. So I'd rather have local control because the issues that face Denver, as you point out, may be different than the issues that face Jeffco. So Beth McCann may see things differently, the DA in Denver, than Alexis King, the, the DA in Jeffco, because those communities are different. They're asking different things for their criminal justice system to do. So I'm not a big fan of when they take the discretion away from judges and police officers who are out on the street, who can't necessarily in real time see that the person that they're arresting for stealing $100,000, maybe an embezzlement or something, Maybe they don't see in real time the fact that this person has committed that offense six times previously. Because when you slap on the cuffs for somebody, you don't have the data that the DA that's going to file the case a week or a month later does. So we shouldn't be putting cops in a straitjacket in order to 
make those determinations on felonies of a serious but nonviolent level that people cannot be arrested. Because those are the people that oftentimes will go out and before the criminal justice system, which don't move fast, you know better than I, Craig, it takes years sometimes for these complex cases to resolve. Those people who commit crimes can do a lot of damage. Let's give police officers more opportunities to make those calls based upon factors, but let's not put them in their handcuffs themselves and, and risk public safety and, and things of that nature. I'll tell you what, you have so many good perspectives. I think it's great that you worked as a criminal defense attorney and then had such a successful run as a two-term elected DA up there in the 5th Judicial District. You mentioned that you have some libertarian leanings. The war on drugs, is it working in Colorado? And you were right in the thick of it when marijuana was legalized. How's that working out? You know, I think you have to look at the drugs differently. So I was watching Fox News. I like to see both sides of an issue last night, and they had some guy spouting with Tucker Carlson, who put himself out there as a psychologist with expertise in marijuana that marijuana often caused a psychosis that made people violent. And that's just not true. You know, some people do go off the edge with some pretty wicked weed, but that's not the story. So legalizing marijuana, good call. That's why the rest of the country is going there. And by the time you and I are old men hanging out in the senior center, I think we'll have 90, 80, 90 percent of the states will have legalized both recreational and or medical. But then when you look at other drugs, ones that are can cause psychosis, cocaine and, and heroin and fentanyl and those type of drugs, we don't want to be distributing right at the local pharmacy without a prescription. In fact, we want to keep them out of the hands of people because they, they're deadly. And I saw it all too often when people thought they were taking one drug, but instead it was fentanyl. They swallow a capsule and the next thing they're they drop dead, just like a, a tree falling in the forest. Don't know what hit them. So, you know, we have to find the balance. One interesting proposal is these shooting galleries, these legalized shooting galleries where opiate users can come in a safe place and be supervised by medical professionals. And what that does is it, it can save lives. And we debated this in Colorado a few years back. And I thought that the biggest Achilles heel is if, if Breckenridge and Denver were to legalize it, but nowhere else in the state and have these shooting galleries where people are injecting heroin who are addicts who are going to do it in their own homes, then that's going to cause all these addicts to go to these particular places. So it arises not in my backyard. But if, if we had a statewide system, and that's a pretty radical idea, they do it in, I think, Vancouver. Those are the types of ideas that we need to at least carefully consider, sometimes embrace, because the bottom line is, Addiction is a health issue. It's not one that can be solved by enforcement. Sometimes we can solve the distribution, but not the use. So we've got to get more creative and more holistic in our thinking. Speaking of backyards, Michael Doherty was a guest oh, about a week or two before the Boulder 10 got massacred. You went to see you. I went to see you, Law. I am devastated. And now... A couple weeks later, it's like, okay, it was just another mass shooting. 
my God, Bruce Brown, what are we going to do about these things? Really tough question. Really tough question. I mean, obviously, we don't have resources to deal with mental health concerns, and that's not a commentary on whether or not this particular shooting was mental health. We'll figure that out. But we know a lot of people who have pretty high-powered firearms do harm to themselves and their families and indiscriminately in the community. So you have to prevent access to firearms. Each state has their own firearms laws. And they, some of the states, they play games with those laws so that somebody in their own state may not be able to purchase a firearm, but they can go to a sister state, come to Colorado here, take advantage of more liberal or permissive gun practices, and then use that gun in ways which harm other people. So we have to be smarter. The idea that we don't track where our guns are and that we destroy records almost immediately of people who have acquired firearms. I understand the idea of liberty and not giving government an opportunity to track all the firearms out there, but I think we have more than one firearm for every man, woman, and child in this country. That's too many. What an urban-rural split there is on firearms. You worked in a rural area, 5th JD. You must have encountered a lot of people really adamant about their guns, but do they need AR-15s? You know, and an AR-15 is a heck of a lot of fun to shoot at a range, but I don't think individuals need to always have those experiences, and they certainly don't need to have those at home. So I think we have to be more prudent about the types of firearms that we allow people to have and the types of firearms that we allow them to have in certain places. You know, the old saw where people, the the guy would ride into town, and, and once he hit town, he had to he had to surrender his gun to the sheriff before he hit the bar. You know, that makes some some sense. And to surrender guns before you are able to enter a school or other public places make good sense. So we have to look at the place. Now, the problem we got, and I'm not sure how to solve it, is the United States Constitution is a lot more permissible then you or I might be right on firearms. And when we talk about constitutional law, and I'll tell you, under Trump, I never thought it was a constitutional law expert. I learned to spell the emoluments clause, all kinds of things. But the one thing that's really hard to do is, is change the Constitution. So I, I don't know that we're in a good place. So I, I guess I go back to we may not be able to do a lot in terms of firearms regulation but we should be able to do more with respect to getting people the mental health that they need so that they have other options other than standing behind a gun. Right. The Constitution means whatever the Supreme Court says that it does. And when I went to law school, it was undecided exactly what the Second Amendment meant. Then Antonin Scalia, in the Heller decision, marshaled five votes to say that it meant that everybody had a right to a weapon, and a common weapon could be yours. And that militia language really did not have any effect. The way around that Scalia decision might be to have more Supreme Court justices, because Donald Trump got a chance to put three mini Scalias on the Supreme Court. The Colorado Supreme Court, where the absolute right to have a firearm is embedded, they've said, in effect, you can ban assault weapons. 
at least in Colorado, I think that communities like Boulder and Denver, I don't know, maybe Breckenridge can say, we don't want assault weapons in our community. Don't you think that's going to happen? Well, I do think the legislature is going to take that up because right now we have laws in the book that don't allow local law to take effect. The Boulder City Council, just prior to in 2018, they banned assault weapons in the possession of, I think, uh, younger people. And then just weeks before, there was a district court decision, which absolutely followed Colorado law that said, Boulder, you cannot regulate what the state has spoken on because the state language says that exactly, explicitly. But You know, the problem with that is it's like if you want to take your gun across the country every time you pass a state line, you're subject to different regulations. It's hard to comply with just knowing how to possess a firearm every time you cross a state line. I'm not sure that that's going to work out real well is every time you pass through Longmont or Boulder or whatever other community there is in Boulder County, you've got a different gun law. But should Boulder be able to say, we don't want to allow assault weapons to be sold in our community? Eh, That sounds pretty reasonable to me. I am wondering about the judicial system, how well it's working. And there's nobody better to ask than Bruce Brown after he served two terms in the 5th Judicial District. The state judiciary is under the gun right now all sorts of allegations. But from your perspective, is it working? How big a deal is the current controversy? Do you like Colorado's judicial system? So I have great confidence in our current Chief Justice, Brian Boatwright. He was a district court judge in Jefferson County. I had the pleasure of trying cases in his court. I think he's a good, he's a very conscientious man. He's, he's a smart jurist. And he's going to straighten out some of the issues that certainly have infected the Supreme Court. What I think we've got a problem with is we don't have enough judges to deal with the crush of business that may not be here today, but it's coming. You know, as our population grows and it's, I think, almost doubled since I moved here 20 years ago, it's going to continue to grow because it's such a fantastic place to live. We're going to have to figure out ways so that people can have their cases heard and justice delivered to them on a more timely basis. Right now, we have two different branches of courts at the state level that hear cases on a daily basis. One is the county court and one is the district court. And district court is for the big cases, right? The felonies, for the cases that involve big dollar matters. And the county courts are reserved for preliminary matters and criminal cases and smaller dollar matters. I think a a stroke of the pen by the legislature and then the governor could unify those courts so that all our county court judges would become district court judges and that the justice system would have a lot more flexibility to handle cases. As you know, not too many cases have occurred, criminal cases in particular, during our pandemic. So we've had people locked up awaiting trial because we've been in a pandemic because no juror in their right mind right feels comfortable entering the courthouse and as we come out of that we're going to have a crush of trials well we're going to need judges to handle those so you know it's a question of of resources and i think that would be a creative way 
in order to harness some of the resources that exist and deal with one of the problems, which is if you've got a civil case and you've somebody stole $20,000 from you or you lost it in a commercial transaction and you think you were wronged, you don't want to have to wait two years for justice. You right. want it heard quickly. And, and we've all gotten notices lately that, hey, even though the pandemic appears to be ebbing, we've got criminal cases we have to deal with. All the judges are needed. Senior judges are going to go back to work. But I like your idea. Good, creative. How is the jury system working in Colorado? For Denver, you know, people lived within, you know, five or 10 miles of the courthouse. But I'm thinking about your jurisdiction. Does it work up there? How's the jury system in 2021? Well, the biggest problem we have is in Breckenridge on a powder day, if your jury summons has gone out to your Vail Resort staff who are seeing the lifts turn and want to get out mm -hmm. for a, a few or the locals who just want to take advantage, it's tough to get them to come into the courtroom. You know, people are good citizens, but, you know, when we take an extraordinarily long time just to seat a jury and people are asked to step away from their jobs for weeks at a time, it's hard for justice to be delivered in that fashion. So we've got to streamline as much as we can. And if we're taking jail off the table for people for pretrial incarceration, maybe for some offenses, we should take it off the table entirely. Maybe during this rewrite of the criminal code that's going to be occurring over the next couple years, because it's coming, maybe some offenses which currently can give you jail time, which also means you have a right to a jury trial, Maybe we take away the possibility of jail time and take away the right to a jury trial. It may not sound good, but you have to be cognizant of, of smart solutions to difficult problems. And a judge can try a, a case a lot quicker than a jury. And so just, again, another idea where we can maybe be smarter about do we really care about, you know, locking somebody up for a, a disturbing the peace noise violation? Heck no. So should they get a right to a jury trial? Yeah. Probably not. Let's stay on that subject of incarceration, because I debated capital punishment for a long time. Now, capital punishment is off the table in Colorado. But people would say, how can he be so cruel? Why would you give the state the power to take somebody's life? Which I do think is a harsh step and it's pretty draconian. But so is taking a person and locking them up in a cage, which in effect is what jailing a person does. And then to jail people for year upon year upon decade upon decade. And listen, I did it a lot. Does it work? Do prisons work? Do jails work? Does that need to be rethought? You know, this is why you hopefully elect a district attorney who's thoughtful and they have a staff who's capable of triage, just like in a medical event. You identify people who need immediate attention and those that it can be delayed. In, in a courtroom, you can't lock up everybody. You don't want to, but you couldn't, even if you did want to. So you need good prosecutors, capable defense advocates, and judges with wisdom to sort people. And those people who are truly a threat to us and who truly cannot conform themselves, that's what prisons are for. And let's not fool ourselves. Somebody comes out of prison after prison, it's probably luck. The reason you put people in prison is so they can't harm us. You know, maybe it 
changes their behavior in the long run. I just didn't like it in there. I'm not going back. So prisons work for the purpose of keeping us safe in some instances, but they do not work for the purpose of rehabilitation. Correct. And we don't even pretend that that's what it's about. But if somebody commits a heinous crime and they only go away for a little while, I heard Van Jones, of all people on CNN, say if Derek Chauvin is convicted of a lesser crime in Minnesota and he only receives a sentence of about a year or so, there's going to be outrage. And there will be. But it's interesting to hear a guy who's usually arguing to get people out of prison acknowledging that if you don't send somebody to prison for an adequate amount of time, then people will take matters into their own hands. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Well, right now, we've seen this before. And, you know, we've alluded to the fact that I was a lawyer in California and I saw what happened, you know, the riots that occurred after the acquittal in the Rodney King case where he was observed on camera being beaten by an officer surrounded by other LAPD officers. So these cases, they're not new. These circumstances are not new. And how we react to them, both from the systemic standpoint and the community standpoint, is very tender. I'll give you an example and might be controversial, but I I know you like when I talk controversially, Craig. Sure I do. (laughs) This officer who just shot this young man, Dante Wright, in Brooklyn, Minnesota, you know, they jumped to the conclusion that she should be charged with a crime, I I think, pretty darn fast. And, you know, I I think that was done for largely political or community-based purposes in order to allay the outrage of the community that might occur were she not have been charged. I took a look at what she was charged with, second-degree manslaughter and it requires that she be conscious that the force that she was applying to him could have been deadly well she thought she was going to use a stun gun you hear it clearly on the tape that she screams stun gun and she says taser taser thank you yeah and then immediately afterwards says oh shit i think i shot him you know she didn't realize what she was doing i think she's actually based upon my reading of Minnesota law, and I'm not licensed there, but I I can read a statute still. I think she's charged with with an offense that there's not probable cause to believe she committed. If those are the elements, right, you are correct. Because, I mean, we all learn as prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys, there are culpable mental states. And when it comes to homicide, the worst is murder after deliberation. Second worst is intentional murder. Third worst is reckless murder. Fourth worst is criminally negligent homicide. For reckless conduct, you have to consciously disregard a substantial risk. Well, she didn't consciously disregard this substantial risk. It's more criminal negligence where you fail to perceive a substantial risk. You would agree with that. She failed to perceive a substantial risk. And she should have realized it. Yeah, she did. And what she did was reckless to a degree. But, you know, recklessness and and negligence are are just kissing cousins. You know, it's clear she made a mistake. And I saw a statistic that over the last 20 years, 18 officers have made that same mistake. And it's not something as a DA that I hadn't contemplated. The 
unintended use of a firearm when you thought you were reaching for a taser. It is a known mistake. They train to avoid it. They're going to have to prove that she deviated from that what was just kind of an ordinary mistake to such an extent. I think they got an uphill battle on that case. But what's more concerning is you know that in a complex case like that, you need time, you need to assess the facts, and the fact that the prosecutor on day one said we're going to have a decision on charging on day three it is not re- reflective or indicative of thoughtful, conscious deliberation on his part. It's it's reflective of public pressure to do something now or else. And the or else is occurring anyways, right? They got riots every night right there as it is. I might be old school and I see it a little different because to me it is a simple case. We know what happened. She clearly thought she had a taser in her hand. Her words are consistent with that. And it bothers me. And Ben Crump, he's kind of grown on me. Gosh, that guy gets hired by everybody who's a victim. And he has to say what they want to hear. But to say that she executed him, like it was first-degree murder after deliberation, it just, it's not right. It's not fair. And then on the other hand, and I think this was on Tucker Carlson last night since you were watching it, and sometimes I watch it too, the right wing is starting to say, well, how is this cop different than the cop who shot the woman breaking into the House of Representatives? I see a lot of differences. But the key thing that I want to bring up with you is the charging decision. I did that as a prosecutor. But I wasn't the elected DA. It was delegated to me, and Denver has a lot of cases. I'm wondering, in the 5th JD, during your eight years, did you oversee every felony filing? And what a big decision. Every day you're making decisions whether to charge someone with a felony or not. How did you go about it, Bruce Brown? So in our small district, nothing like the big city because we only had a population in four counties of 100,000 people. We filed 700 felony cases a year. Well, there's no way that I could review each of those cases. So like you were delegated the responsibility, I delegated to my deputies. Now, there were several cases where I did take on that responsibility. I always managed the grand jury and brought to them cases for charging that I thought were needing the community's eye before we decided whether or not there was probable cause. And on generally the big cases, homicides, for example, I always weighed in with an opinion. I didn't always make every decision. But, you know, when you make those decisions, the most important thing is recognizing the lives that you're touching, the victims that want to see justice and obviously To many victims, that means the most serious charge coming out of the gate. And the defendants and and their families who are afraid of the consequences of of not only conviction, but just the charging, facing a criminal charge, even particularly if you're innocent, it's got to be nothing worse. So it's a very delicate situation. And I know you and I have talked before about, you know, situations where you have a child victim. And sometimes you have a child victim and the suspect, even the perpetrator, is the parent. And maybe that child has died. Well, you know, what could be worse to a parent 
than having a child die on their watch based upon their failure to care from them. And and those decisions are, are just gut-wrenching. And you know, a lot of times you end up coming out of those knowing that there's no, quote, right answer. You know, you just do the best you can and, and you know you can't make, quote, people happy and you, you hope the system in the end has a result, which is just, which is fair and even-mannered to everybody. I know there are ABA standards and professional rules, but the way I went about it is whether I was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of the person's guilt. And I felt if I was convinced, then I should be able to convey that to a jury based on the reasons they convinced me. Is that a fair way to go about it? I think it is fair, and it is what's written in the book. But what's written in the book is not always an easy way to practice in real life. And when emotions come in, you know, as as well as I, you take a, a class of crimes like sexual assault. If I had to go by that book, black letter definition of when I'm going to file a sexual assault, given the community's reluctance on so many occasions to hold an offender accountable, I don't think I'd be able to file very many sexual assaults that I believed in my heart occurred, and I believed that there was a chance that I could convince a jury. But a likelihood, boy, those are the moral dilemmas that you face in real life that they don't teach you about in law school. Wow. That brings to mind a case that rings a mountain bell. Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant now, hard to believe that's true, arrested up in the mountains. He was at Cordillera awaiting knee surgery at Stedman Hawkins. He is accused of attacking a hotel employee. Sexual assault charges are filed. I was called on to commentate about that. I attended the proceedings. I said rape is an abomination, so is a false claim of rape. I never went along with the politically correct statement that rape is not reported falsely any more than any other kind of crime. I think it happens, and I think any big city prosecutor or detective will tell you that for a variety of reasons, those accusations are made and are not necessarily accurate. In other words, you can't always believe the accuser. And that was controversial at the time. I used to go on Fox News and debate Wendy Murphy and whatnot, and I predicted the Kobe Bryant case would not hold up, and it did not in the criminal courtroom. That was a pretty big event, wasn't that, in the 5th Judicial District? Well, that was my entry into politics personally, where on the heels of that charge being brought and ultimately the district attorney, my immediate predecessor's dismissal of that case, you know, I ran against him and, of course, you know, ended up couldn't prove the case, but he had gone to the individual counties that we represented to ask for more money in order to pursue a prosecution that was going nowhere. You know, it's a very, very tricky situation. I think what happened in that case was there was a monetary settlement entered. Right. And the victim did not want to go through the crucifixion that she felt she would face. And do you remember who her attorney was in that civil case? I I do. And do you remember out-of-state counsel? I mean, she had counsel out of Boulder, John Clune, 
Yep. Right. Yep. And then he brought in Lynn Wood. Did you remember that? Lynn Wood pretended there? Yeah, I don't remember Wood. I know John very well. He's a fine attorney, and I'm sure he represented the wishes of his client well. But it was a failure of the justice system to have gone so far in the prosecution of Kobe Bryant and not to see it through. And sometimes prosecutors don't do what victims want. Remember, when I bring a case, I bring it in the name of the people of the state of Colorado, not an individual victim. It raises the question of whether or not the prosecution did justice by asking the court to dismiss it. I know Terry Ruckriegel, who was a fine district court judge and went on to be president of the Colorado Bar Association and still a senior judge, he had a hard time accepting that dismissal. They had worked for months and months on hundreds of defense motions. And in the end, we all are left wondering what. The community deserved some justice, and I don't think the community got justice. I'm not suggesting what happened necessarily was wrong, but I think after that turmoil, we could all feel that justice was not served. Now, you're not saying his name, but I will. Mark Hurlburt was the DA, and I was critical of him. And I'm not sure I understand completely what you're saying. I don't want to misconstrue it. But if you are saying that in the end, the prosecutor made a horrible decision to charge Kobe Bryant and put him through all that, if he was just going to dismiss it in the end, then I agree with you. In the end, he kind of proved that it was a bad arrest. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you learn something about a case where your case turns sour. And so you're forced to make a decision based upon facts you didn't have when you filed the case. But I don't think that was the situation here. I think this was driven by a monetary resolution, not a change of what the facts were. And so as a prosecutor, you're not out there to win a popularity contest with anybody. You're out there to serve the ends of the community. And I I suspect that the ends of the community would have been either better served by no filing the case on day one. Of course, they made a critical error. They went out and they arrested Kobe Bryant. Now, was that a mistake? I think it was because Kobe Bryant wasn't going anywhere. He was internationally known. Once that it was publicized that he was a suspect in a sexual assault, again, international news, the chances that he would pose a risk of harm to individuals or the community at large, very, very small. Those are the ideas that we're debating now when we talk about pretrial incarceration. So get your ducks in order before you file the charges. And once you file the charges, move forward, determined to see justice through to the end, unless you learn something new. It's fascinating how all these characters kind of connect. Linwood. He went off the deep end. I had encountered him during Sean Bonet. He threatened me over my commentary. I have to tell you that Haddon Morgan and Foreman, who represented the Ramses, they didn't much like my commentary. But then on Kobe Bryant, they did like my commentary because they represented Kobe. Anyway, you have to call them the way that you see them. But I met Linwood when he was with John Clune in federal court on this civil case. It was one of the few hearings. I talked to him that day, and he went meshugana, which, as you know, Bruce, is a Jewish word, which means he went nuts, and he started advocating the big lie that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. 
And that all culminated on January 6th. To me, that's the biggest political development of my life because I'm stuck in the political middle. But when it came to Donald Trump and that sort of stuff, I'm on the side against that guy, which puts me in bed with Joe Biden, all the Democrats. And do you think politics has come down to that now? You know, I think that we've gone, look, I want to be an optimist. I I see myself as an optimist and I want to think that things are getting better and that we're not going to be repeating the travesty that's occurred over the last four years and that we won't just go into a place where discourse remains spoken and insurrection is something that we read only about in the history books. I mean, the idea that the president of the United States would incite a mob in order to chase after an election that he had lost. It's insane. It's it's absolutely insane. And I'm glad that the federal prosecutors are taking and using the resources. They've charged, I think, over 300 people so far with different acts regarding the assault on the Congress and the and the and the vote that we right, all but cast. Not, but so, not the guy who organized it, spoke to them, charged them up, sent them to the Capitol. All the words that Liz Cheney put together. Bruce Brown, well, is there a criminal case there? You know, there may be, but it'll never be filed. And and so you and you used the standard before. Do you think you could likely get a conviction of twelve people from the community against the former president in of the Washington, United D.C., where he lost like 92 to 8. Yeah, I think I could. I don't think you could. I, I You know, and so fair minds can differ on that. I think what's going to happen with Donald Trump is he's going to be held accountable for other wrongs in other forms. Will he ever see the inside of a jail cell? No. But, you know, the, he'll. there is a comeuppance here. And, you know, it. It's lurking. He'll he'll be in court in and out of courtrooms for the rest of his life, but it won't be on charges of conspiring to incite an insurrection. But what about Georgia? Bonnie Willis, brand new DA. That was an interesting election down in Atlanta. She may indict him. We all heard the call to Brad Raffensberger. That sounded like exhibit A to me. Yeah, so Coming from a legal career in L.A. where celebrities occasionally get charged with crimes, you learn that the path to a conviction against a celebrity is very, very steep. And so while the ordinary criminal standard may be beyond reasonable doubt, when a celebrity is involved, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I don't see that you'll ever be able to convict a former president under the circumstances that we've discussed. And the man's cagey, too. I mean, sometimes he knew just not the specific words to say in order to keep himself out of trouble. So, like I said, I think the tax evasion issues, the bank fraud that he had possibly, probably committed (laughs) over the years, I think there'll be accountability there. But for the ones in the, the political arena, no, I think he gets a hall pass deserved or undeserved, probably undeserved. (laughs) Is it deserved for us to call it the big lie with the capital B, the capital L, reaching back to the Third Reich and all the implications there? When I heard it, when he started claiming the election was rigged and he kept saying that afterwards, 
I could see the potential for violence flowing from it and darned if it didn't happen and it may happen again. Is it fair to put the capital B and the capital L on it, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, clearly we know that Joe Biden won the electoral votes in order to claim the presidency. And he did it in a fashion which was pretty convincing about the same margin that Trump had won in in 2016. So there's no doubt about the election. There's no doubt that the people around Donald Trump knew he had lost. Did he know he was going to lose? No, people can fool themselves of a lot of things. I think he's an itinerant liar. And I think inveterate. I think the word is inveterate liar. Yeah. And I think inveterate liars sometimes believe their own lies. I don't really care what he believes, but I, I hold responsible so many people around him who enabled those types of lies to be told. And so one man doesn't do it. They need people to stand around them. And so maybe there'll be accountability on some level. I hear the Trump appointees are having a heck of a time getting jobs. Maybe that's a form of accountability that our community has shunned these people and deprived them of the respect that would ordinarily come after leaving a position in in the White House, the center of world power. You're such a friendly guy and a political type, but if somebody embraces the big lie or just says, well, there were problems with the election, just gives oxygen to it. Is that a deal breaker in a relationship? That's what I'm wrestling with, because it is for me. You know, I don't think that any one position that doesn't directly harm other people should be the deal breaker. And I think there's so many people in our society, Craig, that have bought into the big lie that if we don't reach across and work with them on other things, that we're losing the opportunity to heal our country and that you have to be willing to turn the other cheek and you can't have it be the crucible. Even if somebody believes the big lie, you have to keep marching on and realize on other issues, we're all in this together. So we got to look forward and we got to close the door on the past at some point. All right. Well, what about this with Donald Trump? I don't like to label people racist. I was on the radio for decades, and I'm doing this now, and I'm loathe to label people. Who am I to say that? But with Donald Trump, I do think he's racist. And then the people who embrace that part of it, is that a deal breaker when somebody is racist? Sure. Now, bigotry is a different, it's a more morally repugnant to me than being willing to accept a deceptive outcome on an election. You know, then we're talking about a fundamental difference of humanity. And so, yeah, I think you can reject people and not work with them if if they are racially biased and bigoted. And that brings me to the final topic. People are following the trial of Derek Chauvin, the cop in Minnesota. You've worked with cops. You had a badge yourself. You were a peace officer. I think Derek Chauvin got lucky that Keith Ellison did not charge him with first-degree murder because, to me, when a guy puts his knee on the man's neck for 9 minutes 29 and the guy said, I can't breathe, and he kept doing it, 
that's a lot more deliberation than many of the first-degree murder people I prosecuted and convicted. I convicted a guy of strangling a woman to death. I bet it only took about 45 seconds. You know what I'm saying, Bruce? That's a, it's an interesting point. I, you know, I don't, let's assume for a second, this is under Minnesota law, that the penalty for conviction of first-degree murder would be life imprisonment. I don't believe a person like Derek Chauvin, based upon what little I know about him, would deserve that type of punishment. So I think as a prosecutor, on the outcome that you're trying to achieve for that individual, that individual who has a family and who has probably a background of done many good things in life, like you referred to, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have charged it with the greatest crime available as you did too as a prosecutor. Sometimes you look at the person and you say, look, I could go down that road and they might look at a mandatory sentence that is disproportionate. And so I'm going to take a softer path. I don't know. I understand. See, that's why you're the better in the head that you are. But to me, it took a lot of suspense out of the case because I fully expect the conviction on the top charge now second-degree murder. Maybe it'll be third-degree murder. We shall see. But I don't expect anything less than that. And he will be sentenced to 10 or more years in prison, which I hope there isn't civil unrest, but you never do know. But Bruce Brown, I can tell you this. You are in fighting shape. You should be a public figure still in Colorado. I look forward to when your sabbatical is over because you have the world by the tail. You could do anything you want, man. Well, thanks, Craig. I always appreciate your support and the opportunity to come out and, and speak with you in this type of a form. And, you know, I'm hopeful whatever I do that I can give back to a community that I love quite a bit. Well, thanks for coming back into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you very much. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, Get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP. And help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, I had another great week practicing law. So many good results for my clients. That makes me happy. If you'd like to be happy, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I'm getting good at this. 
give me a call. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for your problem or case, I bet I know the right one. And I will tell you who it is. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. So that was our show. Regrets? I have very few. Penfield Tate, it occurs to me that his dad, Penfield Tate Jr., loved Kent State. I wonder if that's why he went there, because it sounds so much like Kent State, Penn Tate. But then why not Penn State? which would be even closer. Maybe it's best I don't bring up those things, but Penfield Tate, what a spectacular dialogue we had. Same thing with Bruce Brown. That guy's going places. Dave Gunders, my troubadour. Sugar Don't Call, love that song. Loved having you listen. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next Saturday. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.